Hey, and welcome back to Future Thinkers. Today, our guests are Tyson Yunkaporta and his wife, Megan Kelleher. Tyson is the author of Sand Talk, an indigenous thinker from the Appalachian clan from the Western Cape of Queensland, Australia. And Megan is an indigenous scholar at the RMIT in Melbourne, who is currently researching the connection between blockchain and indigenous knowledge systems. She's of Barada and Gabalbara heritage of Northeast Queensland, Australia. In this episode, we talk about many different things, integrating indigenous wisdom with contemporary life, whether technology is adaptive or destructive for humanity, growth and scaling in human systems, and transitional cultures on the way to a healthier way of being in this world. For all the links and show notes, go to futurethinkers.org slash 132. And to see the full interview, join our community at futurethinkers.org slash members. To learn more about the Future Thinkers Smart Village project, you can go to futurethinkers.org slash village. Now let's get into the show. Hey, this is Future Thinkers, where we talk about how to adapt to a changing world, build more resilience, upgrade culture and society, and create meaning and purpose. With your hosts, Mike Gilliland and Yuvi Ivanova. I'm going to be curious to to see what you guys are thinking about in a year from now, mm. um, if you continue to stay plugged into the the global network um, and into that global conversation. Because coming from your very local perspective um, with actual wisdom that has been not just you discovering shit on your own, but actually passed down through, I'm assuming, a few generations... Um, you have some insight on what this new kind of switched on part of our brains is doing. And as you kind of participate in that conversation more, I'd, I'd be interested, interested to see what kind of like culture and wisdom you think would be appropriate for that. Because it is global. It, it is like there is a global Internet culture for better or worse, but it doesn't know what to do with itself. And it actually for a lot of people is their primary culture. So what does that mean? Like you can see like people starting to wake up to the importance of being local again. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, the whole resurgence of demand for villages and local living, but they have no context anymore for that style of living. So every other whole context is this global platform. So it's, it's going to be interesting to see what, what the separation of like, um, where that global conversation has its utility and its place and where it doesn't and what kind of culture can we establish that actually allows it to be in its appropriate slot the global culture is well, very adolescent you know yeah. yeah yeah so from our, our from our perspective uh it's more of it's i guess it's a, a time based a deep time perspective and from a more deep time perspective of reality um, this this technology is a re- very temporary thing. You know, it's it's not going to last long enough to leave a cosmic trace um, at all. So, I mean, I'm sure some interesting things are going to happen in this very brief moment when we have all this uh, digital stuff going on. But frankly, there just isn't enough resources to keep this going for much longer. You know, well, maybe a few decades at best. Um, and that's not going to be able to be everybody. It's going to be end up being quite a small elite that has access to these things. And you're seeing that already. People are, you know, people are saying, oh, yeah, we're all, uh, you know, human beings right now. We're all working from home. You know, <laughs> we're all on our laptops and, 
yeah, all these sorts of things. But most of the people in the world aren't. That's most of the people, you know, but there's this kind of bubble uh, that these elites are in where they're thinking that's everybody. It, it really isn't. <laughs> and it's not, it's a brief moment in time. It's not going to be all time. But in that, in that moment, um, I'm only going to be interacting with that until November, um, maybe even October, because I strongly believe there's going to be uh, a hell of a series of October surprises this year. And um, pretty much whatever happens in November is going to <laughs> set the world on fire one way or another. Yeah. And um, yeah, so I'm just giving myself into until November and then I'm, I'm, I'm pulling out of this. I'm not going to have any skin in the game. Um, but Megan's sticking around. So she's working in her PhD looking at uh, a blockchain and indigenous knowledges. And so she's really tracking where it's going. So the first iteration of blockchain is really trying to find all these solutions. And essentially what it, what the first iteration of blockchain was doing from, from what I understand from Megan is it's trying to sidestep trust, yeah, the trust issue, so that we can still have this this system that's like this sort of fascist combination of power and authority, or, you know, corporate and state lines being blurred by oligarchs on both sides, et cetera. We can still have that and we can circumvent the issue of trust so that we can kick the can down the road a bit longer um, and, and try not to descend too much into totalitarianism. Hey, we can have fascism without totalitarianism or whatever. I don't know. <laughs> I can't really get my head around it. But it looks like blockchain 2.0 is and even 3.0 coming down the track is getting a lot more interesting. <laughs> and so out of that, you're getting a lot of, um, you know, the P2P movement and a mm. thousand different things, Idea of ideas of Holochain, yeah. which is not really supported by the tech yet, but but just the idea of Holochain and the ideas that are coming around, you know, peer-to-peer networks and, you know, people sort of going, ah, stuff servers, we don't need servers. We can have our computers talking to each other. And then from there going, hang on, we don't need the computers to talk to each other. We can talk to each other and we can create commons and we can create, you know, um, these communities where there's actually strong links and meaningful interactions and we can create our own economies. And uh, so that's what's sort of coming out of it, I feel. So I, I feel it's really interesting that this brief blip of tech is potentially going to be the thing that leads people back to a more connected, interdependent, what Megan was referencing before, that interdependent sort of uh, syndication of sort of local governments sort of uh, all operating together rather than these massive, big monolithic nations. So it'll actually help us to move away from this temporary uh, system of centralised authority and control and power and move back into more distributed power uh, distributed economies and, and flows of value and true diversity, like a mosaic pattern of um, communities that are living on land bases and being shaped by their unique bioregions and interacting in true diversity and, and therefore innovation with each other. Um, I think that'll be best case scenario where it will lead. Uh, otherwise, it'll just be a technocratic elite that sort of hangs in there for a few more centuries and bloody pretty much kills all of us and everything. We, but we don't know either. But only one of those two things. Well, <laughs> we could we could also have a, a future where, you know, we have um, AIs that have, you know, kind of incorporated Indigenous, you know, governance kind of and knowledge principles 
where they are sort of, you know, asking about, you know, asking themselves questions or their purpose might be, you know, how do I, um, how do I uh, be a good ancestor? Um, you know, and so their, so their, their uh, you know, protocol might be, uh, you know, around, um, you know, without sort of wanting to bandy about terms that are just overused and sort of, um, you know, becoming meaningless like sustainability, but finding real meaningful ways of, um, of uh, being able to incorporate that world that you were talking about where there is a globally connected world where there is an intelligence that sort of that goes beyond our locality, um, you know, and we may still be able to kind of connect with people on other on the other side of the world, um, but in ways that aren't resource intensive. You know, there there are possibilities. Um, it's just what we have to think about the intentions that we program into them. You know, and we have to think about. Um, you know, is our human-centric um, systems best for humans necessarily? They may not be. And, in fact, I think that if we look into the past, we'll see that they weren't, um, you know, that, that um, if we take seriously our role as custodians, then, um, you know, we can have... We can have these futures, but we've got to sort of, you know, we've got to go forward and and put those uh, understandings into there, into these systems at the design end. Nice. M Megan went to a um uh, indigenous artificial intelligence conference in Hawaii um, oh, cool. last year. <laughs> uh, it wasn't a conference; it was sort of a working group. Um, so they were kind of trying to figure out. So it was Indigenous people from all around the world coming together and, and figuring out what Indigenous AI was going to look like. Um, and it was pretty amazing. So there were people figuring out how to, how to you know, create um, robots out of seaweed. Um, there were people um, who'd made, uh, so there were Native Americans making um, hair braid sensor interfaces, you know, with their people, computers. People coding in They're Native co American languages. Yeah. Cool. People coding in coding in Maori language, coding in Lakota language. Um, and and that code, that code looks different because, you know, for example, there's no if-then propositions in that language. Then what does that mean for coding? You know, so you end up with this sort of quantum code coming out in <laughs> Indian languages. So there's a lot of really exciting stuff coming out of there. Um, That's cool. Yeah, the language. I, did, I didn't get to go because I was babysitting, but um, yeah, Megan was there. <laughs> <laughs> the the language um, and the assumptions that are built into the language are really interesting. I'm reading uh, Braiding Sweetgrass right now. Oh yeah, yeah. So it, uh, in this chapter, she's. I'm actually listening to the audiobook, which is really nice, very well narrated. Um, by the author. And so in this chapter that I'm listening to right now, she's talking about how in her language, which I, I can't pronounce the name of the language, <laughs> um, the, there are 70% of the words are actually verbs. Whereas in English language, uh, I think only 30% are verbs and the rest are nouns. So it's a very noun-based language because, you know, Westerners and, and English-based cultures are obsessed with things. Yes. Not, yeah. not with actions and they don't give yeah. agency to uh, things that are not human. 
And in this well, language, uh, everything has agency. So there's verbs for being a bay or being a yes. Sunday or I being a that. morning. I read that. Yeah. Mm. I thought that was well, well, amazing. What that, what that speaks to is process. Yeah. And so that's a really important um, sort of aspect of Indigenous knowledge is that it's not about capturing, um, you know, this time and this place and this thing. It's about flow. So everything is in flux. So that's where, you know, the language reflects that. Mm. So the language reflects that process. Mm. And that's, you know, the being a bay kind of gives, uh, it gives liberty to water. You know, so that at this time it's a bay, it's being a bay, but then, um, you know, it's not bound by the, the shores that confine it because, you know, in its next iteration or, you know, as its flow moves, you know, onto its next part in its step in the process, it might be being a cloud or um, being a river or... Um, yeah, I read that too, and, and um, yeah, it's it's so mm. so it's it's awesome. I think I think this is you're right. You know, where we 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 need to sort of uh, I think when it comes to coding, we need to um, think really carefully about well, what what I was going to say. You know, um, what are the limitations of binaries? But that's a limitation of of mine. I don't actually know enough about coding. Because um, you know, I've I've recently been sort of having a discussion with a, a, a developer who said that you know that there isn't always a binary in these languages, um, in these coding languages. Um, but yeah, I think there's something to be said about the concept of language itself and and what we bring to these codes, these these different platforms when we um, encode them. Um, yeah, so. Uh, Indigenous knowledge is not information, it is method, if that makes any sense. Definitely. Um, we talk about this yeah. all the time and uh, not specifically about Indigenous wisdom, but just mm. in our own exploration of like how to live and, and um, mm. we talk about this all the time, that it's not about state, it's about process, it's about mm. the the principle but the principle is not like a maxim like do this it's it's a how to do something like it's a yes it's a how it's an operational system yeah. thing but you you still have that because you're russian yeah in some ways you know, it's like uh, in our last conversation we were talking about that um that that in russia there is still high context culture there's still uh distributed cognition going on yeah um so, you know, in all the cognitive studies that's been done of uh, different cultures to see that where the high context reasoning is going on, yes, it's in Indigenous cultures, but you also find it in uh, Russia and Scotland um, and, and various other places. So, you know, look, Korean language um, grammatically places the context first in the sentence. So there, if, there's, if you're speaking Korean then you're doing high context reasoning, hmm. you know, um, but the Russian and Scottish and indigenous communities, uh, this is mostly about child rearing practices, you know, so if you're not, um, if you're not rearing your babies according to a clock based schedule, 
And if they're in socially in dense adult environments, um, they're not confined, restricted, then that child will grow to have high context reasoning. You know, but um, if, you know, they're going to the toilet, they're sleep, they're feeding, everything else is determined by the clock and they're sort of swaddled, confined, and they only have one or two carers, then they're going to grow up to have... Um, to be indoor cats. Yeah, indoor mm -hmm. cats, basically. Yeah. So, you know, that's the reason you, you get that. It's because it's you're Russian, I guess. <laughs> Maybe, but uh, there's also it's, you know, a good share of colonialist thinking in Russian culture. It's this weird, yeah. very weird mix. Like the, the pagan ancestral ancient stuff is still very yeah. alive in Russian culture. Yeah. But at the same time, there's this obsession with Western uh, capitalist, like... Yeah almost alt-right kind of thinking. Yeah, yeah. It's very, well, you very see, it, strange. And eventually it will kill it. Um, so they, they found this in, in, uh, in longitudinal studies in China and Mexico. So they found high context reasoning in both of those places. And then they've come back in 10 years after, you know, prolonged engagement with the global economic system, the people lost, people lost that reasoning and became reductive sort of uh, uh, reasoners. Um, which is a bit sad. I think that's that's basically the um, you know the the domestication of the entire species um, that's going on. Mm. Um, so you know, being indigenous is not about it's just about being human. It's not about running around in skins with clubs going ooga booga. It's about having high context reasoning. It's about seeing the big picture and um, you know uh, being able to have that holistic reasoning and and, and all the rest. Um, yeah, what what they call uh, field-dependent logic. You know, all of your logic depends on your connection to the field, you know, the, the, the living um, land base and community and, and context around you. Um, yeah, well, I, I guess civilised thinking removes us from that context and has us focusing on abstracts and focusing on the work to be done right in front of us without questioning where that work is going and what it's being used for. And it's tr always trying to decontextualize everything so that you can have one kind of yeah. a, a clean piece of knowledge that applies across mm. all contexts. And that mm. is considered like the ultimate truth. If it applies in all contexts, it must be good, mm. which is really the opposite of how uh, yeah. ancient cultures view it because everything yeah. is contextual. Like, everything yes. everything has to be universal, replicable, generalizable, mm. scalable. You know, this 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 civilization needs things to be able to scale. And really nothing good can scale. Yeah. Like, only only evil can scale. Hey. <laughs> and the way <laughs> that the, I love the looking at the principles of biomimicry. The work of um, Janine Benews and Dana Baumeister. We had oh. Dana on our show. And uh, so they, they talk about the principles of biomimicry. So kind of trying to understand how nature does things and then applying mm. that to the way that we design everything from products to interactions, to societies, to institutions. Um, and one of these things is that how nature scales is not how capitalism scales at all. Nature scales mm. through decentralization. So there's never kind of a, a centralized power or authority um, 
for example, in the body, like different organs fulfill different vital functions. You don't have just one organ doing all the vital functions because mm -hmm. then if for some reason that organ got damaged, mm -hmm. then you would mm -hmm. die. And this is also yep. why we have two of things, like two eyes. If one gets damaged, you still have the other one. It's also for binocular mm -hmm. vision though, too. That too, but you know, nature also has multiple purposes for the different adaptations that it has instead of being hyper. Mm, yes, acceptation, exactly. Uh, and then it scales through diversity, like many different iterations of the same thing rather than copies of the exact same thing. Mm. And what is it? Attunement to environment as well. Like if you have tomatoes that are genetically identical and you plant one in the yep. shade and you plant one in the sun, like I've got a bunch of them in my garden. And it's, it's amazing the difference you get depending on the different environments. So the tomato mm. adapts to the environment that it's in. It's not trying to grow the exact same tomato in different environments. Mm. So yeah, like the way that nature scales things is really fascinating. And looking at that and designing our systems with those principles in mind, I think would, would make them, would give them longevity and would also- And robustness. Hmm? And robustness. And robustness, yeah, exactly. We're just talking about um, the, the principles of biomimicry and bringing oh, yeah. those into um, into design thinking. Mm. Well, biomimicry is a transitional step uh, to be becoming um, embedded in the landscape again. Yeah. I guess there will have to be a, a time where um, a lot of humans are observing the landscape and then mimicking that until they can come into true relationship with it again. It's the same as in our personal relation. We have to start in kindergarten again and, and um, learn concepts like empathy. But as I always say about empathy, it's, it's just training, training wheels for people who don't know how to relate yet. You know, because when you're truly in relation uh, to somebody, then you, you, just, you don't have to imagine what it's like to be in their shoes because you just are. You are in their shoes. You're in each other's shoes. And you're inhabiting that space in between each other. You know, and I guess it's the same thing with your relation to landscape. If you're truly in relation to a sentient landscape, then you're constantly in communication with it. And you don't have to follow that biomimicry spiral or circular process of observing and then applying. And um, I can't remember all the steps in it, but it's lots of fun. But it's, um, yeah, it's probably a good a good transitional process um, to get through the Anthropocene and then get us all to a point where we can start the thousand year cleanup. Yeah, I agree. I, I think it's, you know, kind of like what you were talking about blockchain that it's uh, what, what's the term uh, like a gateway drug into thinking differently, <laughs> but, <laughs> yeah. but it's not nice. the solution. Nice. <laughs> not, yeah. 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 Training wheels. It's training wheels to get us back into um, a relational form of governance and um, economy. Yeah. Nice. Because, I mean, that's one of the things that, you know, that, um, you know, one of the, the major uh, sort of, I think, barriers that, you know, people are talking about is, is when they can get the governance piece right in blockchain, then, you know, then they anticipate that there will be, you know, broad uptake um, of the technology um, or broad scale update, uh, uptake of the technology. Um, 
And I, I just think it's really interesting that, you know, that that's kind of something that uh, I think relates potentially to biomimicry. I mean, some of the things that I'm sort of thinking is that, you know, in terms of the, um, you know, the ecosystem, um, interoperability is is one of the the sort of the key um, I, I think the key steps essentially you know to sort of the maturity of the of the ecosystem um, and and it's kind of like biomimicry in a way really isn't it that you know you have to know that that one fu one function one organ is 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 performing this function but it you know it it work, it connects in with the function of of this organ over here and um, you know, you have to have diversity within the ecosystem because if you have only one central, you know, organ kind of, you know, if you only have one eye, then if that eye, you know, sort of falls down, then, then you know, the whole system can't see anymore. So I think it, it's just really interesting, actually, um, you know, that concept of, of biomimicry and kind of bringing that as a principle into the blockchain ecosystem is, is really healthy. Mm. We're going to need transitional cultures, uh, transitional methodologies, transitional pedagogies, um, all of these things for a time of transition. And I think for a while, a lot of our human cultures are going to be cultures of trans transition. Uh, I don't think we're going to enjoy a period of homeostasis for for quite a while um, in our human systems. It's um, you know recovering what we've lost over the last century or two even, is going to take quite a while. But I, I often use this metaphor of, um, of whales, you know, you, you can have, you know, how you have those marine parks, you know, where they keep whales in these little pools to jump through hoops or whatever. <laughs> and you could have like five generations of whales born in captivity, and then you can let one of them go in the ocean, and they just, they know all the migration routes. It doesn't take them long to get back into that. You know, it's, it's quite exciting. And in a lot of ways, you know, as human beings, we are patterned. We are patterned to perform a certain function, you know, within our ecosystems. And, um, you know, that's in us. And it doesn't take much digging to find it there, you know, and a return. Disasters. Yeah, a return to that. Yeah, we were talking about disasters as these... Um, as these kind of, it's kind of like a, a people return to their factory settings. Yeah. <laughs> you know? So in, in a disaster, the, the power and authority of, of, uh, of corporate corporation and state are disrupted for a time. That's what a disaster is. And in that time, you know, people, so people experience a lot of trauma, but then you see, you know, if, if that uh, state and corporate control is, is removed for a while, people return to their, their demotic patterns uh, of being and they start to replicate those patterns of creation again. And you get these informal economies um, just sort of spring up where people are sharing and supporting each other. But there's a lot of velocity of every unit of value in these just incipient little local economies that spring up. Um, I mean, after a while, the state returns and bulldozes that. And, and then paves the way for the corporates to come in again and, and reinstate that power. But just in that brief blip of time, you see people talking about mm. these emergent cooperative, collaborative economies um, that sort of come out and they kind of speak of it with some joy. And you hear people talking about the human spirit is what they refer it to, but it just kind of comes through. 
uh, it emerges. You know, we still have it and it'll be there and it won't take long for us to, um, to start to, you know, replicate those patterns again. And, um, you know, over time through a series of transitional cultures, we'll get back uh, to what we're supposed to be doing. And people fear that because of their, um, because of these grand narratives about this horrible, brutish, primitive past, you know, of just, you know, endless violence and rape and these brief, short, miserable lives that we were supposed to be living for, you know, the last, you know, few tens of thousands of years. Um, but that's not actually the case. You know, there's a reason that Cro-Magnon brain is 10% bigger than the modern human's brain. And it's not that, you know, the modern, this human at this, at this stage in history, the indoor cat is somehow the pinnacle of human evolution. It's, um, <laughs> we do need to have a, a bit of a rebirth and a bit of a return. And that's not returning to a brutish primitive past because that past just didn't exist. It's a fantasy that's been invented um, by this civilization. You know, a lot of what we've been talking about lately in group calls uh, has been the sort of situation of the identity of the Western mind in this like kind of high conceptual thinker and and very kind of narrow. It's like the tip of the iceberg. It's very isolated and small compared to the whole uh, realm of possibility for human experience. Like it, let's just say people are out of touch with their bodies mm. and out of touch mm. with what they're connected to around them. And mm. we've been talking about that that kind of moving that, that identity into the body a little bit more so you can just look around and be a little more in touch. And, you know, people don't even know how to chop wood. And that's such a simple thing, you know, pick up the axe and chop. But the, the kind of people we've talked to lately seem to be like, how do I have a plan for chopping that wood? You know? <laughs> plan. Yeah. yeah it's like, what's funny. the strategy? What's the, the proce- propositional knowing of yeah. hitting that, that yeah. piece of wood? And, and in the same way, like, I feel like technology's added on this other layer, like I was talking about before, of, um, of possible identity with this kind of internet persona thing. People are always performing. Which almost know? abstracts it further from the natural human experience. Yeah. But, mm. you know, again, I feel like there's there's such an open opportunity to for people to refine where their identity is and include the body and include uh, the community and, and the mm. environment. And but also so, include the technological layer too to figure out where that sits. Yeah, it's it's interesting. Um, so I'm part of a research um, community um, at uh, the, the university that I'm at, which is um, RMIT in Melbourne. And um, so I, I sit within what's called the digital ethno just digital ethnography. Sorry, <laughs> digital ethnography research center. And um, and there's a uh, so you know digital ethnography is um, you know the key component essentially of um, of what you know how how these uh, researchers work um, and so you know so they'll be looking at um, you know maybe um, you know social lives um, kind of lived online you know um, or you know electoral processes um, you know 
um, through Instagram or, I don't know, just, you know, I, I'm just trying to give you a bit of an idea of, of some of the sorts of things that, you know, people might look at. And um, and I was participating in a, um, you know, a sort of an online event that, that, that we we did and um and there was this instagram live um you know interview that happened and and um and it and it was a really interesting sort of experience because um you know it kind of made for me uh you know this uh well people kind of look at at social media as this kind of um you know folly in a way um, and and I think you know there are people who look at at these these online lives that we have as a sort of a folly, um, and and this you know amazing um, academic who's who's um, you know part of that that um, research centre talked about how um, you know these interactions that we are having these digital relationships that we are having. They are valid and they are real and we are relating, you know, we are connecting um, and, you know, maybe there's something, I don't know, I mean, maybe it's the the recording of it or the reflecting on it or the sort of looking back on, to it, you know, at it, um, you know, maybe, maybe there's something problematic about that. I don't know. Maybe that kind of inhibits us from sort of, you know, moving forward. Maybe it inhibits the flows because there's a kind of a capture or something, you know, happening there. But I don't know. I mean, I sort of think, um, I think we shouldn't completely dismiss or we shouldn't necessarily see these relationships that we're having or these encounters that we're having as necessarily disembodied. I don't know. I don't know whether whether it's entirely, I don't know. I think that's, that, that's something that, that's potentially still in question and that's because we're still, we, we are kind of, we're at the forefront of it and particularly, you know, at this time, you know, when everybody is, you know, there's there's books and books of, of research <clears throat> that's emerging now about how um, COVID has kind of, um, you know, sort of impacted this or created new forms of connecting and relating. Yeah. And, um, and I think, you know, is it disembodied? I don't know. I mean, I feel like I'm I'm part of your household at a, at, at the moment. Mm. You know, whereas, and 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 I actually feel, and I've talked about this with people, you know, at 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 work. I was going into the campus. I was going and sitting in a room um, where there were no other academics at the time. Um, you know, I would go there from you know nine to five. I'd do my work in the computer kind of trying to connect with people, you know, who were basically an email address. Um, I didn't know which room they sat in and, and where to go and find them. And I felt more disconnected then when I was on campus than I do now when I'm, when people are, are kind of coming up and going, That's hey, true. you know, because we're all in this together. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and like I'm seeing people's kids bursting into the room and people are laughing and I'm seeing... Um, you know, all sorts of like, I, I'm seeing people's, people are actually having to bring their lives to their workplace now because, because they're, they're, we're, we're situated in our home. Um, and I don't know, I mean, I kind of think it's sort of interesting. Like, you might have just changed my mind on, on all that. 
So in the pre-interview that, that, that we did last week or the week before, I think it was last week, um, you know, I, I actually took them to Mullumbul. Oh, yeah. You know, so I was, I was showing them the groundwater there and where it is and how it all works. So is that not coming into place? Yeah. So are we, are we able to have some kind of relationality with place? Um, that's not just a cyber space, but we're actually connecting with place. A cyber place kind of thing. And I guess if we're talking about haptic cognition, you know, a haptic relation with the tools we use, like chopping wood, you know, your brain recognises that acts as an extension of your arm and recognises your relationships as an extension of your neural processes. Mm -hmm. um, why would we limit how far that could go? Uh, we can talk to someone in Cal in Canada and I can feel like I'm sitting on that awesome couch you got in the background. There. <laughs> it looks nice. And how, loving, how loving that, your lighting, that, by the way. How is that less real? <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I've been thinking about this a lot because um, we, you know, we have had online relationships for a lot of years and only online. And we've known people for years that we've never had the chance to meet in person and have you know, shed tears and all kinds of stuff, had all types of emotions online just in this format. And at the same, in the same way, I, I've never really thought about it before, but like in the same way that you finally come to meet people and, and you feel like you know them, you've known them for years because you have, it's just been through a screen though. The, you have this kind of like abstract knowledge of who they are that then comes into an, an embodied location based you know you can actually touch them and it's not that far of an extension beyond what you already know them to be it's just like oh now i can touch you great and and like there are added dimensions but i just realized that it's the same thing with place you know when we've been talking to someone and we see them in their their environment too that's almost a bigger trip than actually seeing them for the first time. It's like you being in that, their same environment that you've only had an abstract concept of. Like I only see your window and some vague picture frame behind you and that's it. But suddenly I'm there and it's like it's fully embodied. Um, but I'm just mean to say that just like I've been talking about the Internet culture being this like abstract thing that we need to figure out where the culture is. We are still connecting up and down between those two layers. Like, mm -hmm. you know, we are forming real relationships, even though they're on opposite ends of the planet. Yeah. And there's even a there's kind of a, almost a sense of touch mm -hmm. um, happening there. I mean, I guess and I mean, I, I guess that the sort of sexual marketplace is usually where they're usually at the cutting edge of all technology. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So, you know, most of the tech we're using has come out of, yeah. you know, a longing for intimacy or, I mean, a fetishized version of that anyway, um, which is really interesting that that's such a big driver. Mm -hmm. You know, like, so my, my daughter's 18 and she was telling me the other day that most of her, she, she can't get a job because there are no jobs right now. But she said half her graduating class of females is... Um, they're cam girls now. Yep. Because that's, that's the Whoa. only work they can get. Everybody's doing OnlyFans. Oh. That's it. So, and I'm thinking about that, uh, you know, the, you know, the ASMR thing. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And, and it, there's a lot of like, you know, so they'll be doing. <laughs> I hate ASMR. <laughs> 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 there's kind of a sense of touch. You know, coming through that, 
and you know a lot of really intimate sort of mouth sounds and stuff and yeah that's sort of supposed to make you go ha, ha, ha. <laughs> <laughs> but it's really interesting because um uh, i just remember a lecture you know that i was in when i was doing my undergrad and this you know amazing lecturer was talking about um dexter and how like you know there was this uh you know this um the problem that tv um production companies were sort of you know facing when you know the internet kind of surpassed television and how were they going to sort of you know ensure that people um you know that they could um that they could that there was uptake of their of their tv productions and so there was this you know this kind of research that was done um you know kind of uh like drawing on um advertising and drawing on um you know uh research into the sort of parasympathetic um you know nervous system and stuff like that and responses and how um you know like dexter they were uh you know she sort of just showed the opening credits of, of dexter and how there was this kind of you know you got really intimate you know you see these Tactile. steaks kind of sizzling in the pan and yeah. you know and these sort of these red colors and um and you know how these these palettes are used strategically to engender these responses yeah. from us through our eyes um you know limbic yeah so we so these things do actually you know um yeah. Like when we're looking at screens, where our eyes are telling our brains, which is you know only that far away, you know that there's that there's this thing that's really happening, and we're really having this kind of interaction with people, and there might not be the pheromone kind of transfer that's that's sort of or the biotic sort of transfer that you know that might be happening if I was you know in your in your you know lounge room or, or whatever. But, um, and, you know, that's kind of a good thing for pandemics, I suppose. But, um, but yeah, but there's still something going on um, and that's been proven through, through you know, through research. And we, we see how, um, you know, on-demand, de on you know, TV consumption has kind of just, you know, gone off. Like mm -hmm. people, people sit and they watch Game of Thrones, um, you know, until it... Um, you know, is, you, until there's no more episodes left to watch kind of thing, you know. Um, yeah, so it's. At the quantum level, you know, we can be exchanging electrons anyway. I mean, I mean, you know, the, the, there's electrons in your left buttock right now that are probably, you know, um, taking a, a quick holiday up to Alpha Centauri or something for a minute and bouncing back into your right butt cheek, you know. Um, that's that's going on all the time. <laughs> so yeah, while there isn't that uh, biotic exchange going on um, at the quantum level, shit, maybe. Yuvi likes a good butt <laughs> joke. Butt <laughs> um, you know, I, I've told this story before, but um, Yuvi and I for a while there were playing a lot of Minecraft, and if you're familiar with that game, super blocky. Um, meant to be low res and silly looking retro looking and we played it enough that i started having dreams oh, and wow. where, where i was in the dream just doing what i would normally do but i was embodied in the character 
and not questioning the blocky nature of reality at all. Just being like, I'm just going about my day. (laughs) Everything's blocky. (laughs) But yeah, it's weird how quickly and easily that can just, you, you can put yourself into something so blatantly on purpose, obviously not reality, you know, not even a close representation and you can just find yourself in it. Yeah. Well, it's that, um, it's those imaginal worlds, uh, they're, they're the worlds of spirit, you know, and your metaphors for knowing spirit, you know, that they can be mapped on. And the way you bring that back into your tangible reality, that's, that's a ritual process. And so that's something that we've been doing for thousands of years, a million years as human beings, as working with ritual contexts to create these imaginal realities, you know, where we inhabit this halfway space or even this spirit space for a while. And we find those, we design these collective solutions and, you know, tweaks of reality there. And then we bring it across into our real world. So that's what in our culture, what our increase ceremonies are all about. We have these annual increase ceremonies, you know, where we do that. And it's about increasing the combinatorials and relations within our system. So we don't have a growth-based economic or ecological or social system, you know, in our cultures. Um, And if it is growth-based, it's growth into the micro rather than growth into the macro. So we increase the complexity of the system rather than increasing the size of the system. We increase the velocity of all the units of value in that system and all the informational exchanges. And, um, you know, we create more and more complex relations and out of that comes more combinatorials and more innovation. Um, You see this... You see, well, for me, I see this more in um, the the women's business side of our culture than the men's business, you know, uh, because uh, in in women's business, um, there's a faster turnaround. So there are are generations happening faster, um, you know, in in terms of an evolutionary uh, process. You know, a man makes a boomerang and that's his boomerang for five years, but a woman makes a basket and that's her basket for five weeks. So almost as soon as she's finished one, she has to be starting the next one. So you get more, it's more iterative cycles happening in women's culture, in our culture. So women have always been the sort of um, the, the creative engine of our culture and women's business and women's ceremonies, which I'm not allowed to even know about, it, they seem to be the center of things in our culture. So all of the innovation and the relational dynamics and complexities seems to spin out of that um, that central focus of women's culture, um, which is really interesting, I think. All right, that's it for this part of the interview. To check out the show notes for this episode, go to futurethinkers.org slash 132. To see the full interview, become a Future Thinkers member at futurethinkers.org slash members. Once you're inside, you can sign up for courses, workshops, and in-depth private calls designed to help you increase your sovereignty, resilience, and sense-making ability. And finally, to learn more about the Future Thinkers Smart Village project, go to futurethinkers.org/village. If you like this content, you might want to check out our Seven Ways to Adapt to the Future guidebook. Get it for free at futurethinkers.org/signup. 
You might also want to check out our Future Thinkers membership area. We have courses there to help you adapt to the changing world, build resilience, upgrade culture and society, and create meaning and purpose in your life. As well, you'll get access to our community, all of our unreleased content, private Zoom calls, live Q&As with guests, workshops and events, and more. Just go to members.futurethinkers.org. And if you enjoyed this video, please like, share, and comment. It really helps out our show more than you know. And if you want more like it, then subscribe and hit that bell icon to be notified of new videos. See you next time.